power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Our primary reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, through chapter 4, verse 13. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the diversion of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of the Lord. One of the things that really confused me as a kid and really into like my late 20s was how the Hebrew people could have spent 40 years in the desert wilderness. Uh, Because basically I was told that like God freed them from slavery and then they got lost in the Sinai Peninsula. But then like a dad who won't ever ask for directions, they basically just like went around in circles for like 40 years until finally somebody was like, okay, let's just ask God how to get out of here. But as I got older, I got a little confused because, well, I looked at a map and that's a small space to get lost in for 40 years. And then when I got older and Google Maps came out, it got embarrassing Because now we could calculate how long it would take to get from Egypt to the promised land, depending on your mode of transportation. That's it? Nine hours by car? Six hours, six days by walking? How could this?
this story be possibly true? But here's what no one told me, and to this day, I still don't know why. It's not that the Hebrews couldn't find their way out of the desert, but that they were stranded in the desert. You see, the backstory to our first reading this morning in the book of Numbers is that the Hebrew people, in appropriate travel time, arrived on the outskirts of the Promised Land, this region that is made up of what is modern-day Israel and Palestine. And Moses sends out this reconnaissance force to slip into the region unnoticed. But they come back with some bad news. The promised land is not only occupied land, but its tribes are armed to the teeth and its soldiers are massive. They're they're so imposing that they even say that they seem like giants. Every scout but one, a young man named Caleb, says the situation is hopeless. The result? Unbelief. Crushing anxiety, panic, despair. The Hebrews collectively decide that this whole exodus plan from Egypt wasn't a plan for God to free them, but rather lead them to slaughter. Not to give their children a a future, but to actually hand them over to a worse kind of slavery. And So what does God say through Moses? Verse 22. They have all seen my glorious presence and my miraculous signs I performed both in Egypt and in the wilderness. But again and again they have tested me by refusing to listen to my voice. They will never even see the land I swore to their ancestors. None of those who have treated me with contempt will ever see it. But my servant Caleb has a different attitude than the others have. He has remained loyal to me so I will bring him into the land he explored. His descendants will possess their full share of that land. Now turn around and don't go towards the land of the Amalekites and where the Canaanites live. Tomorrow you must set out for the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. So the Hebrews don't want to go to the promised land? God says, fine. Turn around. You're not going. You are going to sit there in the literal space between slavery and freedom. That desert limbo between toil and rest. Until every person of the older generation dies. It was basically the greatest okay boomer moment in history. Our primary reading in the letter to the Hebrews today is exceptionally long. Let it not be said that we don't do a ton of Bible here at Parkside, but this is for the reason that our author of Hebrews has this almost exhausting theme of rest. Last week we began what was a two-part warning to his Hebrew Christian congregation in Rome. This is Apollos. And to do so, he's going to use two stories that his audience would would have known well. The revolt against Moses over a water shortage recorded in Exodus 17, that was last week. And now this revolt against God after the negative reconnaissance report recorded in Numbers 14. Now, there's a temptation for us modern readers to recoil at the warning language found in our Hebrews passage today to just accuse Apollos of fear-mongering. 
However, it's important to realize that this type of rhetoric would not have been offensive to Apollo's audience. Like a filmmaker that makes a dramatic movie that keeps you on the edge of your seat, we're not offended to be emotionally captive to a compelling movie. And so likewise, this emotional roller coaster of rhetoric would have actually been in the first century appreciated by his audience. But also, to the extent that Apollos is scaring them, it is because he is scared for them. And I know, generally speaking, we like to have our spirituality stay as positive as possible. Uh, one of the reasons I know many of you are here at Parkside is because you are so over the hellfire and brimstone sermons. But sometimes a warning is a good thing. This is something known as, get this, legitimate concern by a qualified expert. My doctor is not fear-mongering me when he said I need to get medicine for my high cholesterol, otherwise I might be at risk of a heart attack. My therapist is not trying to control me when she says that unless I deal with my childhood trauma, it's going to continue to undermine my existing relationships. And as a parent, I am not trying to manipulate my five-year-old when she says, and I say that if she doesn't eat all her broccoli, somewhere a unicorn will die. Okay, that is manipulative. I meant that. And I don't know who made this picture. That's a weird one, but I had to use it. <laughs> but what is Apollos concerned about for his Hebrew Christians in Rome? That they would miss out on rest. And I don't know about you, but a good nap sounds really good to me. I don't want to miss out on that. And so what exactly is this rest that he is referring to, and how do I not miss out? Now, if we were just taking a guess about what this future rest is, we might say that it's heaven. Keep believing so you can get to heaven. And in one sense, this isn't entirely wrong. Look at verse 14. Apollos says that we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. The ultimate end for Apollos is God's ultimate victory over evil, a new heaven and a new earth. Likewise, there is some sense in that the promised land for the Hebrews was a kind of heaven, the, the culmination of 400 years of slavery and 40 years stranded in the wilderness. However, Apollos' use of the word rest here is multivalent. I know that's a, maybe a weird sounding word, but multivalent in a literary sense means to use familiar but contradictory meanings in order to help the audience understand more complex concepts. And so we see here in Hebrews two contradictions. First, rest is referenced to that older generation failing to get rest because they never made it to the promised land. That's cited in chapter 3, verse 18. But then in chapter 4, verse 8... Joshua is referenced, even though he made it to the promised land with the next generation of Hebrews, he's described as not getting rest, even though he made it. Why? Because he was in a state of conflict. So what does this mean? Is that rest 
It's not found in arriving in some destination or achieving some goal, but rather a state of finding yourself at peace. Second, God is referred as resting on the seventh day of creation in chapter 4, verse 4. That is the Sabbath rest. However, Apollo says that even though God rested from the work of creation, God is still at work. What does that mean? That rest is not ceasing from all forms of work, but rather it is finding deep senses of satisfaction in your work. But there's one more reason while rest can refer to our ultimate salvation, we should be careful to limit it to it, this simplistic definition. This is because in Numbers 14, our story today in our first reading, note that the promised land is not synonymous with forgiveness. Let's look at verse 20. Then the Lord said, I will pardon them as you have requested. But as surely as I live and as surely as the earth is filled with the Lord's glory, none of these people will enter that land. Even though the older generation of Hebrews will die in the wilderness, God assures them that they are forgiven. They are not cut off from relationship with God. Even conservative theologians will point out that these Hebrews who died in the wilderness were spiritually saved. God's commitment was initiated by God when God liberated them from slavery and Egypt. And despite having to endure tragic consequences for their revolt, God remains committed to them. This means that we cannot equate the promised land to heaven and heaven to the promised land as if our forgiveness and relationship with God is now somehow still determined by my own effort. No, God's commitment to me was initiated when God forgave me and liberated me from the slavery of sin and despite my revolts that I still do in my own life, God is still committed to me. So what is the rest? Chapter 4, verse 3 begins to reveal it. For we who have believed enter that rest. For Apollos, rest isn't something we will only enter into one day. As followers of Jesus, it is something we are entering into right now. There is a perfected form of rest when God will defeat evil and restore the world. But a foretaste of that can begin right now I don't have to wait to experience peace from the conflicts that are around me I can receive peace right now that Christ is with me and will never leave me I don't have to wait to experience satisfaction in the work that I do in the world I can be satisfied knowing that all the good I ever do will not be wasted. God sees it all and uses it for the redemption of the world. But not only that, if you are listening to this right now, you haven't missed the window either. It's not too late, Apollo says. The promise for entering his rest still stands today. Today is a new opportunity to experience rest. 
Now that's true. Why does Apollo say then in verse 11 that I need to strive to enter that rest? Because that sounds tiring. Like if God wants me to rest, why do I have to work for the rest? Right? Like it's like saying, God, you get to go on vacation, Colin, but you're going to have to do tours for the tourists. Or it's like saying, I need to make my own birthday cake. I mean, whoever's baked their own birthday cake? Wait, you really? Well, you need to make mine. All right. Because that feels like it defeats the point for me. I mean, why can't we just skip the work part and get to the rest? But look at this exhortation in conjunction with verse 10. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So why do we need to strive? Simple. Because the striving isn't doing. It's being. The striving isn't accomplishing. It's believing. The striving isn't performing. It's trusting. Apollos makes it clear that you can rest with the same kind of satisfaction that God had after the creation of the cosmos. Not because you created anything as impressive as the cosmos, not even close. Look, I can't even create an impressive birthday cake. But your satisfaction emerges from the realization that God has invited you into God's sovereign plan for the cosmos, that God has brought you into a story far bigger than your own story, even in those moments where you can't see it. But that can be hard to do. That can be real work to believe God. Not believe in God, mind you. Believe God, to trust God, that takes striving. Because when the Hebrew people got their reconnaissance report about the promised land, armed to the teeth and full of giants, what happened? They stopped believing God. They still believed in God. No one became atheists. They stopped believing God they stopped trusting God it takes work it's hard to look at the conflicts that are around you the challenges to to do the right thing that are before you the the giants in your life when you get that bad medical diagnosis When your financial situation looks upside down. When you know those people in your life that are actively trying to harm you. To look at those giants. To to rationally, reasonably have fear. But then say no. No, I will not turn back. No, I will not go back into the desert. I will not give in to unbelief or panic or despair. I'm still going to believe. I'm still going to trust that God is with me. 
and I will rest. Not passively, but actively rest because I will continue to work, but now with the assurance that God is working in me. But come on. Don't pretend that's not hard. Certainly do not beat yourself up if you've discovered how hard it can be. But I'll tell you what, as much as it can be hard, as much work as it can take to believe God, to trust God, you know what's more exhausting? Unbelief. Distrust. Because in those moments where I'm faced with my giants, And I decide that I don't believe God anymore. That God doesn't have goodness for my life. Oh, then I need to start frantically grabbing everything I can to save myself. No one is coming to help me. I am all alone. And so I need to do everything on my own, by myself, to protect myself. You thought it was a lot of work trying to believe God? Try being your own God. That's exhausting. And you will never rest. Because there will always be another threat, another danger, another conflict. Until the day you die. Believe God. Or be your own God. These are the only two ways to live. And these are the choices we all have to make. Look at verse 12 with me. For the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit. Of joints and of marrow. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You all know some of you were probably told that this verse was about the Bible. That the Bible exposes people and that you need to do what the Bible says or else give an account to God. But that's not the context. When Apollos wrote this, the Bible had not yet been compiled and canonized yet. And our author of Hebrews has already told us in the first chapter that God is only revealed in fragments and pieces in what we know as the Old Testament. And even with the Bible as we have it today, it doesn't have the power to discern the thoughts or the intentions of the heart. It's a book. It's an inanimate object. No, the only one who has that kind of power is Jesus. Jesus consistently is called the Word of God. Jesus is living and active. Jesus, the one who was pierced for us, can pierce to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and nothing is hidden from his sight. But this is good news. Because when Apollos calls Jesus sharper than a two-edged sword... He's referring to a Roman 
short sword. It's called a gladius. And it was what the Roman soldiers used to kill their enemies at close quarters. And so as the persecution begins to increase under Emperor Nero, the Hebrew Christians in Rome had a reasonable fear that they might be on the cutting edge of this very sword. And yet Apollo says that Jesus is even sharper. Jesus cuts deeper. Jesus is stronger than the swords of Caesar's legions. These are the giants that the church in Rome faced. But Jesus says to his people, I know you're scared. But believe me. Trust me. So everyone has to make a choice. Sometimes it is a once in a lifetime choice. Sometimes it is a choice that we make daily. Regardless though, those choices are not between you and the other people you fear might judge you. They're not between you and a religious institution. They are between you and God alone. But with those choices, Jesus gives us good news. You don't need to spend your life in the space between slavery and freedom. You don't need to sit in that desert limbo between toil and despair. The kind of rest that Jesus offers you can go with you from your whole life and into death and into new life again. Just as Joshua led the second generation of Hebrews into the promised land, Jesus stands as the one who conquered sin and death and is ready to lead you. For what does God promise? I will bring them safely into the land. That promise still extends to you. May we enter God's rest. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Thank you, worship team. That was beautiful. I don't know about y'all, but as I sit shivering on the front row, I just keep thinking of the summertime naps after the beach when you're a little bit sunburnt. Oh, I can't wait for that, that rest. That is good rest. That's that the is, best yes, rest. Yes. <laughs> All right, so there we go. Excited. There's the sermon right there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We have a lot of questions about rest, Colin. How does one balance the all-too-often necessity of self-reliance while facing some of the giants you mentioned with resting in God's rest? Yeah, I think, I think a lot of us intuitively know this, that, that this rest is not this passivity, right? Because mm-hmm. when, when you look at the story of the Hebrews, right, when, they, when they're getting to the promised land, God doesn't say, hey, just sit there and I'm going to take care of everything. Yeah. Why don't you believe me? And God's like, no, no, you've got to go take the land. You've got to, go, you've got to actively do stuff, but I want you to trust me that I'm going to be with you. And so this, this rest really comes back to being like, you're supposed to do the work. You're supposed to be engaged. You're, you're, it, it, it has no passivity connected to it. The rest is primarily psychological because honestly, if I'm being honest with you, like, a lot of the times I am most fatigued in life. It's not because I had a hard day of like physical work, right? But it's because the psychological, mm. emotional labor has just crushed me and that's where God's coming in to say actually I can I can alleviate a ton of that because when you know I'm with you you're going to be far less tired okay Hebrews passage makes God sound angry and exclusionary how do I reconcile that voice and story of God with believing and a loving God yes that's a great question so we talked about this a little bit last week too we did it on on the pastor's live stream about the the narrative of particularly God um in the Old Testament and how the Hebrews are kind of going back and writing these stories as they're sitting in like another slavery in another nation, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're making a dynamic of God that is highly personable, which also has these personality traits that sometimes make us go, oh, that doesn't seem like God, right? But it's helping teach their kids that God is a relational God and that God goes with them. So you can take some of the angry God stuff with a little bit of grain of salt. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you also can note in the Hebrews passage is that every time like someone is like disobedient or someone screws up, God always is going, I'm going to use someone else's screw up and actually to bring more people in, to re-offer grace, to re-offer forgiveness. And so if you're, if you're reading this text going, I don't know, God seems a little angry, just see if you can flip it and go, okay, when other people screwed up or when I screw up, God is actually going back again going, actually, hey, Maybe you, maybe you want to enter into this. Maybe you want to think about this differently. Maybe you want to come back. Um, and that's why uh, the author of Hebrews keeps going, today is the day. And he's using that like, as this, this, this exciting thing. But he's also saying, like, if you feel like you screwed up in the past, today is a new day to live again. And that is a lot of encouragement to me. And that's what God is offering through uh, Apollos. All right, last question. And it's one of your absolute favorites, a practical one. Um, sarcasm. What does rest in the context of today's sermon actually look like? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Okay. So, um, I mean, you get, you get very personal when you start doing this yeah. stuff. So, like, okay, so I'm coming out of a season of life probably the last two years that's been really hard. Um, and Um, so when I, when I think about how I've had to rely on God for rest, right, none of it's been passive, but some days it's just waking up in the morning and going, like, Lord, this is the day that you've made, and I will rejoice, and I will be glad in it, and I, I know you're at work. And so I, I have had rest that I would not have had otherwise, because I truly believe that God has not abandoned me and God's still with me, and God is still 
working in me and confronting my own sin, but also giving me peace. And so I, I, I truly believe I've experienced rest that I could not have had otherwise um, because it is a day-by-day trusting that the Spirit is in my life. And so I, maybe that still sounds too ambiguous. Like that's like, well, what does that practically mean? But I can just tell you personally that on the other end of it, I, 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 still, I still believe it's true. And I, I can tell you I've experienced it. Thank you, Colin. Thank you for being vulnerable. Sorry we made you cry. If you have any other questions or want to see Colin cry tomorrow on Facebook Live, you can text them in and he will do that tomorrow on Facebook Live. Make sure you follow. Thanks.